0: Hi, everyone. My name is Agustin de la Mora. I'm your host. Welcome to Subject to Interpretation. This is my opportunity to share with you a little bit about myself. I was born and raised in Mexico City, and about 30 years ago I came to the States and became an interpreter. It's kind of an interesting switch because originally I went to school and studied psychology, when I went to uh, when I came to the states, the first job I had was as a teacher for a school of languages, and one of my students uh, requested that I help him to do a deposition for one of his clients. And it was very interesting. Uh, my director encouraged me to go and work as an interpreter for this uh, lawyer, and uh, I will tell you the first thing that I learned was that I had to speak in the first person because. Uh, When I started speaking and saying things like she says that her sister and her brother, it was so confusing that the attorney taught me to speak in the first person. I was hooked, to tell the truth. I found it super interesting, exciting, and I was encouraged by that same attorney to go to the courts and offer my services as a court interpreter, which I did. And I was asked a couple of questions, and I told him I was a teacher, I worked for this company and I did a deposition and I was invited to come back and before I knew it I was interpreting in the courts and I had never been in a court of law I I found it all I felt like I was in a movie or something it was really cool but I also found out immediately that I was ill-prepared to interpret in the field I had no idea where to stand or when to start speaking and when not to start But lucky for me, uh, there was a group of interpreters already working in the courses. was in Tampa, Florida in the 80s, and they took me under their wing and helped me understand the process, understand uh, how to get trained to become a court interpreter, which I did. And a few years later, I became uh, certified. I took the first certification exam from the state of New Jersey as a court interpreter, and then a few years later, I became a federally certified court interpreter. And after that, I, when certification came to the state of Florida, I became certified in the state of Florida. And in 2015, I became a certified medical interpreter. Maybe 2013, actually. So I've been doing interpretation for a long time. I, th- I find it fascinating. It's really exciting. I've been in the trenches with many of you interpreting in the field. But uh, I also like training. And based on the experience that I had when I first started, I thought I would pay it forward, and I tried to offer my knowledge and what I have learned about interpreting in the field to others. So I opened a training company, and we've been, uh, actually, we're very excited to tell you this is the 20th year that the Lamora Interpreter Training is uh, working in the field with the interpreters and helping develop interpreting programs and curriculums for uh States and universities, and it's really a lot of fun. So, I decided to. Well, actually, my team decided for me that we should have a podcast because I don't think there's any, or maybe very few, places or spaces for us interpreters to talk to each other, to share our feelings and our thoughts and our expectations from the profession, and to have the opportunity to hear from people who are involved in the field who have been working either as interpreters or administrators or even end users of the services, uh, how are we doing in the field and what is it that we need and what can we do to make it even a better uh, fit for our needs and the needs of the communities where we're working. So that's how Subject to Interpretation was born and I am very happy. and excited to tell you that today is our first podcast, and we have a great guest for you. The format is going to be always the same. We're going to have a great guest that is working in the field, either, as I said, as an interpreter or as an end user of interpreter services. We're going to try to make it all fields. We will talk about medical interpretation. But because uh, my original field and my formation as an interpreter in the country started in the legal field, today we're going to talk about court interpretation. And our first guest is Jackie Ring. I am super excited uh, that she agreed to be our first guest. She is the manager of language access services for the National Center for State Courts, and I've had the pleasure to know Jackie for many years, uh, more than ten and we served together in one of the committees for the National Center for State Courts a, a Consortium at the time. So she is very knowledgeable. She has a wealth of knowledge and experience in the field of court interpretation, testing and development, training, recruiting. She's really a, a very important part of this process in the United States. And today we're going to have a conversation with her we're going to have the opportunity to talk to her about what are the challenges for interpreters, what are the challenges for the end users, who is using court interpreters, and why is it difficult to pass this famous test that everybody's scared about. Anyway, we will have a long conversation with her uh, that will allow us to literally uh, pick her brain regarding the state of court interpretation in our country, and what can we do as bilingual people who are interested in the field or court interpreters that are already in the field, certified, or in the process. Uh, I'm sure you will enjoy her take on the obstacles and opportunities afforded to interpreters in this country. So how about we get started? Let me welcome Jackie Ring. We are so very happy, and pleased, and honored to have a great guest for our first podcast. Her name is Jackie Ring, and Jackie and I have known each other for a long time. She, Jackie is the manager of the Language Access Services section of the National Center for State Courts, and before I uh, let her say hi to you guys, I wanted to let everybody know that the fact that she works for the National Center for State Courts and herself uh, being our first guest, this does not in any way constitute endorsement or support of any of our training programs. This is just a conversation that we want to share with all of you. So, without any further ado, hello, hello, Jackie.
1: Hi. Good afternoon. How are you?
0: I'm doing great, thank you. And Jackie, I wanted just to to start by you telling us a little bit about uh, what is it that you do in the National Center for State Courts and what is the your your title sounds like very long and very interesting. So, could you share with us what is it that you do there?
1: Yes, definitely. So, I am the manager for the Language Access Services section, as you noted, for the National Center for State Courts, or often referred to as NCSC. Um, and we really act as a national repository of um, court resources, and that, for the state courts primarily, and that can run the gamut of all the subject areas uh, that courts get involved in. Um, Particularly for my work, we are the repository for language access resources. So really providing the courts with information and resources to help them uh, provide adequate or um, language access services in the courts. And then we also are the national, um, repository for the state court interpreter exams. So these are the written and oral exams that the state courts use for credentialing uh, court interpreters. Many of the states use for credentialing court interpreters. So um, certification, or in some cases, um, it's called something different, but typically to, uh, to have the court interpreters on a roster. Um, and we are we act as both the test developer and also uh, the maintenance piece of testing. And then we have protocols for test administration that the states must abide by, as well as uh, recruitment and training of the oral exam raters.
0: Wow, that's quite a mouthful. So you you guys are involved <laughs> a lot in in the process of uh, people becoming certified court interpreters so they can work Mm -hmm. as uh, court interpreters uh, with some kind of credentialing uh, around the states. And you Mm -hmm. mentioned something that uh, is interesting to me, and I'm sure to many of the people that are going to hear this, and this is this famous certification exams. And uh, because you and I have been around for a little bit, uh, we know that this exam many times, to this day, many people still call this the consortium exam. Are we talking Mm -hmm. about the same exam?
1: We are. Yes. Thank you for that clarification. So these are also known formally as the consortium, which was a group of states that came together to, um, historically, the, the consortium came together to develop tests for state use for credentialing court interpreters. And um, it is the National Center for State Courts. We now do refer to those typically as the NCSC tests, the oral, written and oral exam tests. And just, I think a point of clarification, and your listeners probably know this, um, we, we're we not a national credentialing body. Um, so similar, you know, RID is typically known as the National Credentialing Body for ASL interpreters. The NCSE does not certify interpreters. We develop and provide the exams so that the states can certify. So of course, what that means is that um, the actual requirements and the um, specific certification parameters do vary by state.
0: Exactly, and you know now that I we kind of really jumped head on on this thing about certification and exams. But I wanted to backtrack a little bit mm-hmm. and have you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself. How did you end up here today with us? How did we? Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be very interesting for everybody to know. Are you an interpreter yourself? Mm-hmm.
1: I'm not an interpreter. Um, I have been working with court interpretation issues now for about thirteen years, which is it's always surprises me when I think back. Um, I actually started my career on the other side of the court system, which is that I worked in um, providing direct service to uh, typically to family court uh, users. So I did work in the with um, individuals and litigants in the court. I was um, started out in a, a sort of a social work role. Um, At some point in my career, I started to be very interested in um, language issues specifically and and with the court population that I was working with, and took a detour and began um, training and working towards uh, teaching English as a second language, which then bridged into uh, working with larger language solutions and language testing, and I worked for a number of years for... Um, a nationally recognized commercial vendor doing uh, language testing and language training. Um, Following that work, I started to get more involved in testing specifically in the area of interpretation and then court interpretation, (laughs) and um, that led me to working with the California uh, Judicial Council for a number of years, and then now with the National Center for State Courts. So I guess the full breadth of my experience is um, working with uh, language uh, acquisition, language training, then went into language testing and assessment, and and then I became more specialized in court interpretation.
0: Right. So I think that like many of us, since I'm an interpreter myself, you ended up in this field almost by mistake let's say <laughs> serendipity right you started yeah. on left field ended up over here i i think that that's uh pretty typical of people who are interpreters in this country especially mm-hmm. because uh until recently i don't think anybody uh, was aware of the fact that interpreters existed or what okay. we do and i always tell uh Friends of mine that when I travel, often people ask me, what to what do I do? And I, when I tell them I'm a court interpreter, they say, all oh, those guys with the little machines that sit in front. And I go, no, those are the court reporters. <laughs>
1: oh, yes, yeah. Uh-huh. So
0: what do you do? Mm-hmm. I'm a court interpreter. Oh, so how many languages do you speak? It's really interesting that people kind of don't um, – uh, place us exactly as to where we belong in the courtroom. And many of us just felt I was a teacher myself and ended up here. We are talking about court interpretation. Mm-hmm. And now uh, in your opinion, Jackie, what what are the changes you've seen in the last 13 years you've been doing this? Mm-hmm. Where are we today as uh, as far as court interpretation goes in this country? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there's a couple different areas where I think there's been some uh, significant shifts. I think I think the, the profession in terms of court interpretation uh, and court interpreters has really grown in terms of uh, acknowledgement of, of understanding the importance for court interpreters, and I think that's a, a really f- a amazing shift in, in seeing the growth Um within the state court landscape, there's also a broader use of interpreters. I mean, the expansion into using interpreters in all proceeding types, um, potentially using interpreters for um, events outside of the courtroom and uh, ancillary activities has been a real expansion over the years. And I think that's um, definitely just a a really positive growth and evolution. I do think within the thirteen years, one thing I haven't seen change very much, and I hope to see change is that we really seem to continue to have a need for court interpreters that's greater than the individuals that really are um, able to meet the the demand at the level needed for court. Um, and I think that that it, it's it's as if the need continues to like outpace. The growth of um, interpreters. So I really hope that there's more um, avenues for pipeline development and uh, resources and training and, and just overall um, growth of the interpreters as a, as, a, uh, as a cadre of individuals who can serve the courts because the need is there. And um, I would say definitely within the last 13 years, we also see that the need is growing in, in cities and states that may not have been the traditional gateway uh, states where you would see kind of a stronger immigration pattern. So the need for court interpreters is it's national and it's really even in the smallest cities um, across the United States. And 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 that really shows that there's a demand for the profession and uh, a real need to continue to develop individuals who are qualified to, to work in the courts.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree with you. And I think that, that it's very obvious that uh, the need is there. But don't you think that uh, the need is very obvious for people like you and me when we're in ins- inside or working in the courts? Maybe you talk to a judge and go, yeah, sometimes, you know, when here comes this guy and he doesn't speak the language. But I think that the problem uh, or part of the problem might be that outside the courts, outside our universe, there's still like not a lot of information or mm-hmm. or desire uh, even uh, acknowledgement of the fact that interpreters uh, have a a job uh, that is a real job,
1: mm-hmm. not only in
0: the courts but mm-hmm. in in other fields, because like I said, many people out there when I tell them that I'm an interpreter, they really have no idea. Do you think that that's a part mm-hmm. of the problem, that the general public really is not aware of our existence as interpreters? Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> I do think that's, um, yeah, I think when, when you think of interpreters, you sort of um, probably visualize uh, kind of conference interpreters and the UN level of sitting in a booth and providing the, the kind of conference interpretation that's been sort of popularized in, in media and such. So I think you're absolutely right. I think the profession of, of interpretation, um, it's not something you think of when you sign up for college courses, right? Or when you're in high school thinking exactly. about, you know, what am I going to be when I grow up? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the, the first sort of original wave of interpreters uh, in the U.S., or at least in my experience of meeting interpreters, tended to be individuals like you just, you know, opened our conversation with who kind of came into that path through other avenues. There's may have been individuals who'd been working in teaching or training or sometimes even like in the medical profession in their home country and then moved here and became interpreters. So um, it really historically, the court interpreters that I've met have have traditionally come to the profession as a second profession or really as as something they did later in life. And I think in order to attract um, individuals to enter that pipeline straight from college, it really does have to become a national um, job, a job that you know about and that you prepare for accordingly.
0: Yeah. I think that, you know, Uh, they, the song says that you don't want your kids to grow up to be cowboys. I don't know why, uh, but, uh, a lot of people say, oh yeah, when I grow up, I want to be a doctor, a firefighter, an engineer, a bunch of stuff. But I don't think you hear kids saying, I would like to be an interpreter, at least not many that I've heard of. And, uh, even if they're studying languages, they're still kind of off that field. So maybe we need to do a better job going out there and, and telling people that is a this is a real profession, not, uh, not something that you just fall into and then you do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I keep on telling uh, judges and attorneys sometimes that my training, when I first started 30 years ago as an interpreter, was very thorough. They asked me, do you speak Spanish? And I said, yes. They said, "You can you be here tomorrow at nine? And I said, yes. And boom, I was a court interpreter. And mm-hmm. uh, that... And to tell the truth, even then, I didn't know that court interpreters existed, even though I was a bilingual person and I was teaching languages in a school. I had no idea that uh, the services were needed. So maybe we need somehow to reach out to the next level, not the people that are already using interpreters, uh, but people who might become interpreters or something like that. Mm -hmm. What What do you think?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I think that uh, that having it become a more um, acknowledged and understood professional path is, would be extremely helpful, and having a national campaign would be great. Are you trying? To, are you giving me a national task? <laughs> so yeah, exactly. uh, to leave here with that. You um, sure you don't but... want to be the PR person
0: also? <laughs> yes. Like maybe put you on commercials and say, please become an interpreter. It's a lot of fun. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I'll put that on my to do list.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we can put on it. All right. And as as an in, let's let's go because I think there's obstacles both for the end users of uh, interpretation and for interpreters themselves. What do you think? As end users, you say the courts are aware that they need interpreters. What? Why are they having such a hard time finding interpreters? You think?
1: Hmm. Um, I think there's a, a lots of issues in terms of locating interpreters. I do think. Um, in so, in cities in high volume urban areas, um, there tend to be more interpreters that are qualified at the level needed for courts so um, but there may but there's also more users, so it kind of still there's that outpacing issue where. Um, even if you have a lot of interpreters available at your fingertips and they're there and available in the urban city settings, uh, there tend to be more individuals who also need the services. So it, it still can be a kind of, um, there, there still can be a demand and supply issue. And then what we're seeing in some of the other um, parts of the country, rural areas or states that didn't typically have um, interpreter it didn't it didn't necessarily have the need for interpreters uh, years ago. There there may be more individuals there who are in need of an interpreter, and not as many people who could provide the services at the high quality level needed in court. So I think it's just it's just pure supply and demand. I do think that courts are starting to rely on other. Um, efficiencies to assist, so efficient scheduling systems that allow them to schedule interpreters in ways that would um, really maximize, yeah, maximize their use, yeah, mm-hmm. maximize their use and, maxim, and and really schedule cases appropriately to maximize mm-hmm. the interpreter's use. Um, you'll see some of those efficiencies taking place and then of course there's um, a definite interest in the use of technology to really uh, help Provide more qualified interpreters to to places that just really can't get them otherwise. So,
0: right, I, I you know, you mentioned technology. I think that's one of the element, elephants in the room for many interpreters because some of the working interpreters are not necessarily happy about mm-hmm. the, talking about technology because there's this fear, oh, well, then I'll make me obsolete. You know, if they. Mm-hmm. Really, and I, it always uh, makes me think of this anecdote, and I'm I'm going to ask you also to think if if you can uh, share with us some funny anecdote that you have uh, encountered while you're in this field. But I, I have to tell you when when uh, when we started doing remote interpreting here in Florida so many years ago, uh, we had a, a machine where you could actually hear the interpreter and see them on a screen and have a conversation with them. But the original machines that did, uh, we first had in Florida didn't have a video screen. So it was just all audio. And uh, I remember that interpreters that are well-trained, as you know, speaking the first person. So um, one of the questions from the judge came to the to the person and the person said in Spanish, no entiendo, no entiendo lo que dice. So mm-hmm. the interpreter correctly said, Through the machine, of course, there's no interpreter present. So the judge was a little confused, but was going along with the process. And out of the machine comes the words, I don't understand what you're saying. And the judge said, you see, the guy doesn't understand the machine. (laughs) (laughs) So so Mm -hmm. I think that technology has a lot of these moving parts because uh, we're, you know, if we don't understand what interpreters do, it makes it even more complicated, Mm -hmm. this technology thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that technology, um, I, and I mean, I'm not just speaking to interpretation here, or court interpretation, even. I think technology is appropriate for appropriate purposes. So, I, I mean, across the board, right? I mean, in, in all of our worlds of communication, and um, I, I mean, I think that courts, and not just courts, but other industries are looking to technology as a way to really improve services because in a lot of cases it is it is appropriate and beneficial to all parties to have a qualified credentialed court interpreter provide services and um if you're in the middle of the woods somewhere you know and and can't And, you know, remember, I mean, there are these there are communities where there will be large, you know, agricultural communities who don't speak um, English proficiently, who may be out in a very rural area. Um, It's if it if you can get a qualified court interpreter and this and the technology is going to assist that end user, um, it may be the appropriate solution. So I think that um, and and I don't I don't think technology will um, if used appropriately I don't think it will take the place of individuals I think um, certainly individuals who are comfortable with technology may end up um, you know taking on those taking on those opportunities that come available but um, yeah I think that and I think courts are being very cautious so I right um, I I. I do think that that it can assist with uh, providing a qualified court interpreter if that if that's right. the only way mm-hmm.
0: yeah and I, I think that that's the key right it, obviously, I think at this point in the in the game we all would prefer to have a qualified interpreter certified interpreter right next to the person and live with the with the judge and have everybody in the same room and that would be ideal, but you're right I mean there might be situations where I would have nobody in hundreds of miles around that is certified or qualified. Plus, it's something that requires to be done today. I, I, I'm thinking about people being in jail, for instance, mm-hmm. that need to be arraigned or told about what your bond is, and they need somebody to give them that information in their language. So at that point, technology would solve the problem. I, I, I'm going to quote somebody, but I have to apologize. I can't remember who the author of the quote is, but somebody said in a conference I attended, they said technology definitely is not going to, uh, replace interpreters, but some interpreters might be replaced by other interpreters who use technology. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what you were saying—that uh, uh, that's we need we need to adapt to the situation as as it is. Where do you think we're going with this, Jackie? Uh, do you see more interpreters getting certified? What, what would you like mm-hmm. to see?
1: Uh, I mean, I definitely think we need more certified interpreters nationally. So I hope that that is um, part of the solution and where where we see um, some growth for sure. I mean, we also have just so many different languages around the country um, and they really can differ in the various states because Spanish is by far number one in most states in terms of volume and, and need, but then it can really vary depending on the immigration population and trends in the specific states, and in some cases, um, uh, refugee resettlement, some of the other factors that come into play. And so I think we need to continue to, to grow interpreters in numbers um, in Spanish for sure. And then uh, in all of these other languages for which, um, in many cases, there may be very, very few people nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, At the National Center for State Courts, we are working to build a national database that would allow state courts to really um, be able to contact interpreters from other states and uh, be able to work with them in their states, and that's a national effort that's underway. And I think that will really help to also, um, particularly in languages other than Spanish, where there may not be um, individuals in the home state to provide services that it'll really help to um, provide more processes and platforms for States to find the interpreters that they need. Um, I don't think the field is going away. I think um, language and globalization and sort of the solutions that are needed to provide services in many languages is here to stay. I think court interpretation as a field now has to compete a bit more with um, globalization in every other industry. So, you know, right. now it's possible to use your language skills to be, you know, a localization expert at Google yep. or to work for, you know, uh, national advertising campaigns for Coca-Cola or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, And you also mentioned, you know, conferences. I mean, there's sure. more and more conferences around the world and around the United States and they're, obviously interpreters are kind of gravitating to that field too. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so it's an interesting competition that uh, we're working hard. And I, I felt that more than once when I was working in the Ninth Circuit that we would train these interpreters that were newbies and once they got to be really good at it, they would immediately leave us to go get a job somewhere else because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they found a, a job as a, a conference interpreter or mm-hmm. something like that. So, uh but I, I agree with you. I don't think that we're going to see any any, any, any this profession going away, going away anytime soon. Even though my ex uh, father-in-law used to tell me 15 years ago, "You better learn to do something else because machines will be doing your job in about mm-hmm. a year." Lucky for me, that hasn't happened, nor do I see it happening anytime soon. But it's very interesting, and I'm I'm glad to hear that that I was not aware that it was a project that was underway of creating this national database. I think mm-hmm. that would be a very good service uh, for the courts, and hopefully uh, that could grow into other areas also because I know that Uh, Other government agencies, we're talking about court interpretation, but I'm sure other government agencies are facing the same problems, you know, Mm -hmm. schools, the Department of Transportation, Mm -hmm. and any other entity that has contact with the public. Mm -hmm. So we just happen to be uh, leading the way in in, in many respects as as far as uh, uh, training and development and testing, of course. And while we were talking, have you had any opportunity to remember any funny anecdote that you have uh, heard through your uh, travels and trips in this interesting profession of interpretation?
1: (laughs) Any anecdotes? Um, I mean, I don't know that I have any really funny anecdotes. I, I could probably talk about all of the stories I've heard Uh, along the testing road of what people say, but I I probably won't share those here. Um, Yeah, unfortunately,
0: we can't (laughs) share the content of the test, but I'm sure some of them would be uh, quite interesting.
1: Or just like comments. But um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, one thing, what would I share that comes from my experience of being in this world? Well, I'll I'll share this because I get this a lot. Um, We do, of course, hear from people about the, court interpreter exams. Uh, and we certainly take the comments in, in um, always uh, very seriously. And we, we do appreciate feedback. Uh, we do often hear that the exams are too hard. And I I guess what I share usually in that sense is that I, I think the job is is a very complex job. So court interpretation requires a lot of complex skills and a very thorough, broad range of um, knowledge and vocabulary. So just the knowledge, skills, and abilities for court interpretation are extremely complex. So i I try to take I, I try to make the focus on the job, and then the exam really. Um, is designed to measure the skills needed for the job so the test itself is is challenging but that's because the job is extremely challenging
0: exactly exactly i i love that i i was in uh i done training for interpreters in many states and i remember one of the states that was starting the program um invited me to do their orientation and after the orientation the manager told me you know Augustine that was a fun class and everything but I think we're not going to invite you anymore (laughs) and I said well okay that's fine I mean is it something I said and she goes well you know the problem is that many of the people after the class they approached us and said that maybe this was not for them because it looks like court interpreting is difficult (laughs) and I go it is, <laughs> you know, but yeah. then again, somebody's life or liberty is at stake here. And I think this, uh, this, uh, things that we hear all the time oh, the test is way too difficult is because there was an underestimation of the skills needed to actually mm-hmm. do it correctly. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it's, I, um, it's, it's really, I mean, as your listeners will probably be interpreters or are interpreters and court interpreters, principally. Maybe um, it. Everyone who listens to this probably already knows that, so it's not something new. But I think, um, right, the job is is extremely complex and challenging. And I, I always encourage um, candidates too if they ask me about preparation. Is in addition to all of the other all of the preparation and training that's out there that that they could and should be doing um, to observe court, to go to court, to watch. The way courts operate, it really does help you understand some of those other nuances that make make the job um, what it is. I mean, courts are not there. They don't look like what they look like on law and order. They're not quiet. Right. They're not quiet like ordered i mean there's always a million things going on it's noisy it's hard to um you know so it's good to just get that um i think to get that further understanding of what court is like
0: yeah yeah and yeah it's more like law and disorder right (laughs) well jackie uh i don't know if you you have anything else that you want to share with us again i know that you have other things to do and we really appreciate the time that you uh, uh, set aside for us to talk to you. So if there anything, any thoughts that you want to be with us with to all the people that are out there uh, thinking that they want to be court interpreters or they already are and need mm-hmm. some more guidance? Any words of wisdom?
1: Right. Well, I guess I'd say for all of those those of you out there who are court interpreter candidates or even maybe if you're in the medical profession and um, or other interpreting professions and you're trying to think about what to do with your lives, uh, we need you. <laughs> so, Badly. you know, yeah, so keep at it. Uh, maybe I'm practicing my national slogans here. <laughs> so uh, we, we need you. Keep at it. Um, you know courts do need you and then if you're looking for resources or additional information on um, the exams in various states or other resources related to language access or court interpreter you can check us out at www.ncsc.org
0: okay well Jackie again thank you very much it was a pleasure as always talking to you and we'll talk and see you soon